I just saw that news that George Russell has been confirmed as the new Mercedes teammate, Lewis Hamilton. I just heard that from Russick in the update. Least shocking thing ever. I can't wait for that next series on Netflix, Drive to Survive, because I love behind-the-scenes sports stuff. Got to know these personalities, and now I'm a huge F1 fan. And now I'm a fan of the Danbury Trashers, who I had, I'll just admit, hand up. I had no clue. I had no idea. Um, again, I love, I'll, it's pandemic times, all right? I've become very familiar with my Netflix account, all right? There's nothing that people tell, hey, you should see this thing on Netflix. I'm like, oh, okay, I uh, have. I've seen it. I've seen it all. But there's this new series that's called Untold, and started with the Malice at the Palace one that I saw, which was great. And it was through the perspective of Jermaine O'Neal, who I just think never really got a good shot here in Toronto. It was just a tough time. Um, didn't work out here. But people kind of forgot how great of a basketball player that guy was and how the Malice at the Palace affected him through his perspective. Because we always think about Ron Artest and we always think about Steven Jackson and Reggie Miller not getting a championship and Larry Bird and Jermaine O'Neal was kind of the forgotten guy. And so this Untold series through his eyes was awesome. So when I, now I'm just a fan of it, right? Now I'm just watching them. I see them come up. And then there's this new episode that comes and it's called Crime and Penalties about the Danbury Trashers. And it didn't immediately catch my eye. I was like, okay. And then I did the little scroll over, you know, they give you the little preview of Netflix. And it's like, hey, it's a 17-year-old son of a mobster who got to own a hockey team where he filled it up with goons, and they had success. But it was just this wild, wild ride of a team in the UHL that not only scrapped but won and had these imposing mob figures hanging over everything, like threatening officials, giving people side purses for fights and goals. And I'm watching this doc, and all of a sudden, they're talking about the lockout and going, oh, we're going to try to get some NHL players in here. And bang, my next guest makes a cameo appearance. It's Mike Rupp, Stanley Cup champion, analyst for NHL Network, and now probably as famously as those other things, member of the Danbury Trashers. What's up, buddy? <laughs> What's up, JD? Thanks for having me on, buddy. Yeah, crazy. How nuts is that story? I mean, I was, I, I was a part of it to some degree. Um, yeah. Playing there, obviously, I was there for for parts of the one season, um, mm-hmm. and then there was the, that second year also in Denbury there when it all came to an end. But uh, seeing it on screen and told from a different perspective and different uh, people telling it, I mean, I was at the edge of my seat too. I mean, it's a, it's an incredible watch. It's crazy every time. There's like 18 different turns that blow your mind in the first probably 30 minutes. You're like, there's no way. There's no way. Yeah. But I'm here to say, yeah, that stuff was actually happening. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's incredible. And I actually have some takes that are actually related to hockey off of it to a certain degree. But so you show up and – well, actually, let me just start with this. How much has your flo- uh, phone blown up since this series? Like this had to be something that when you were a couple of years removed from it and sports docs really started to blow up. You must have thought my my phone eventually is going to ring about this story, right? Like thirty for thirty is starting to do docs. They start to do these shorts. Everybody wants a piece of a sports documentary. I can't believe this thing took this long to get done, considering what the story is. I can't believe that 
uh, so few people knew about it. But yeah, you must have had some inkling of, hey, uh, uh, this is going to probably show up even more so than a 30 for 30 on, you know, my Stanley Cup champion winning team. <laughs> I'm more likely to be involved in something on this. Yeah, you know, there was there was a couple other times over the years where there was ESPN magazine was doing an article on it a number of years ago, and they contacted me. I was playing for I think the Minnesota Wild at the time, and they contacted the team and they're asking me about it, and I want to know who is who is cooperating in it, who is who is adding to the pieces, you know, and, and it. Uh, I asked, I said, hey, is the Galante family adding to it? And the answer was no. And I've seen a lot of movies. Yeah. <laughs> and if they're not participating, <laughs> guess what? I ain't either. So yeah. that was kind of the first time there was an opportunity. And uh, no, it's just uh, it's that tongue in cheek. I mean, it, those guys, hey, listen, there was a ton of different views on it. People are probably like, oh, a lot of people might think it's disgusting. It's a story that actually happened that's insane. And it's being told. But the one thing that's for certain that those guys treated the players like gold. And I know when I was there, we were treated like NHL players through and through, as, as far as the way the locker room was. Uh, um, it was it was it was top shelf. So when I got asked about this from Netflix, I actually thought it was a joke at first. I got a call from uh, the producer, and he's like, "You know, my name is uh, blah 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 from Netflix. I'm a producer, and uh, we want to know if you want to contribute to the story." And I'm like, "Yeah, okay." Like Netflix is calling for this, and then uh, he called a couple more times, and finally I just said, "Hey, same thing. Are the Galantes involved in this?" And he said, yeah, they, they're all, all involved in this. Um, once that was confirmed, I'm like, yeah, let's tell the story. It's a great story. And uh, that, that thing I love about it the most is they went on there, uh, the Galantes, AJ and his, and his dad, um, Jimmy, and they didn't hold back. You know, there was no I, – I love when you have documentaries that you have the person who <laughs> – either got in trouble or there's some conspiracy against or whatever the situation is, but they're actually talking about it, right? And they're giving a different angle. So uh, I thought it was incredibly done, and that's kind of how it came to, came to fruition. Yeah, you don't end up actually seeing anybody in jail, so that helps. But seeing the end where, like, the star – I would say that there was, like, probably the breakout star of that doc was Brad Wingfield, right? Like, there's just so yeah. much in there. Also, just a terrifying guy when he's, like, running down his injuries, and you're like, oh, my God. I looked up his uh, his hockey DB page because I had to after this. I was like, let me see where Brad Wingfield. Uh, the years with Danbury, he didn't even have his most penalty minutes. There was a year where he played two years uh, where he played for the Elmira Jackals. 50 games, not even, 49 games, 472 PIMS. And then a year with uh, 63 games, 576 PIMS. I was like, okay, it's pretty, uh, <laughs> this guy racked him up. So he goes to the trashers, and he's basically the number one enforcer of the document. But, yeah, the I, I don't want to spoil it for people, but there is a scene where, yeah, he gets reunited with Jimmy, and you can see the love in his eyes and just the happiness and you can tell just the way he was looking back on those times in his life and even how everything went and how disappointing it was like it it yeah it just it was it was great to see that perspective you know and it was great to have there were parts of it where it's like hey obviously like crime is happening and it was a little glossed over i would say but it was still cool to see the human side of this and how much those guys loved hockey and how much of that actually resonated with the community and with the players and that the stuff that was actually just like happening on the ice was cool. Like it was a really, really great story. I loved it. I loved it again. Like it has all the elements of something that you could sell me on, but I like how you said 
that you're saying it tongue-in-cheek and that those guys did treat you well and that their involvement would probably be important for you to talk about it, not because of fear of threat, just fear of, you know, it being their story and you contributing to their story, right? Like, I would look at it more that way. But your cameo starts with during the lockout and you getting a call from your agent where they say they want to pay you with a duffel bag full of money. I, did, did you get the duffel bag? <laughs> no, there's no duffel bag. It was oh. more of... Uh... My agent at the time was was Scott Norton, and uh, he. I, so what ended up happening is that the lockout happens, right? So once the season's announced, I mean, at that time I'm 20, 23, 24 years old. I, I need a place to play. I'm a young player who's played a couple years in the league at this point, and uh, I just had uh, my, my second child, and there's a little bit of complications, so I couldn't be far from home. So I didn't really have anywhere to play. Like I couldn't go play in the American Hockey League. I would have been a traitor to the players association, (laughs) you know, like there was all this weird, I I didn't know where I was going to play. And then I got a phone call. It's actually funny. um, If you, if the listeners are, or you remember the, the Ferraro brothers, Chris and Peter Ferraro, um, the twins, they're from Long Island, you know, played in the NHL and American hockey league for their career. And um, I was friends with them. They called and they go, Hey Mike, and they go, Rupper, we got that. There's this guy in Connecticut who was trying to get some NHL talent to come there. And he really wants to win a championship in the United hockey league. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, so, um, would you like to talk to him? I sure, sure. I'll talk to him. So, um, you know, I start talking, I talked to Jimmy on the phone and I'm talking to him and he's, uh, basically, yeah, you know, this is what we got going on here, blah, blah. blah. And I say, well, you know, Jimmy, here's my situation. I'm like, I always know because I was this type of player. Like, if you, if I was in the American Hockey League and you sent, a, there's an NHL player sent down in the American League and playing against, you'd always want to use that as a measuring stick to show that you're capable of going to the next level, whether it's challenging them um, to a fight or, or that's just the, the way that it is. And so I said, no, I, I want to come there and get my legs moving and play because it's important for me to play this year as a young player. I don't want to come there and have everybody trying to, to fight me every game because I played in the NHL. Now I'm in the United Hockey League. And he just goes, <laughs> he just goes, Michael, I want you to hang up the phone when we're done here and go check my roster. He goes, you got nothing to worry about. You're not going to be the fighter. We got enough fighters here. And I'm like, don't get me wrong. Like, if I need to stick up for a teammate or whatever, I'll do it. But, you know, I don't, I'm not going to, you know, whatever, to do it all the time. And I look at the roster, same thing you said, and I see this lineup. And I see these names. And I'm like, are you serious? And, and you know, from that point on, I, uh, I flew in to Danbury to kind of take a look around and, and watch a game to see what the level of play was like. And that was the, one of the funniest parts to me is that AJ, the seven-year-old, is the one that picks me up at the airport and he picks me up and he's showing me around. (laughs) I've got this 17 year old kid showing me around and, uh, I, I was, they're very endearing and and I I loved it. I love what they're going for. So I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And then to some of the point in that documentary to my words in that documentary, I had no idea what I was getting into (laughs) and it was a great memory now, but man, there's some stories to be told. Yeah. Okay. So that's the, the next one. It's like, so, uh, I don't think I mentioned this part. Is like, yeah. So this guy, Jimmy Galante's son, is technically running the team. They got to pay. I think it was like a half million dollar expansion fee. They get in there, and this seventeen-year-old AJ 
is the GM of the team, and like he's still in high school, and yeah, he's just a character. He looks exactly like a 17-year-old with a ton of money. I thought it was important that they set up the documentary with his love of hockey and the way that he fell in love with the sport because it was genuine, but... Yeah, it had to be a bit of a trip when you're showing up with 17-year-old kids like, hey, what's up? I'm the GM. You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> this is – like you must, you must have at least had a moment <laughs> where you called somebody and were like, hey, so – like how many times did you check with your agent to be like, you sure I'm not going to get in trouble for this, right? Like you're sure that this isn't going to be something that I'm going to – is this going to keep me out of the NHL? Am I going to try to get back there? Because like – yeah, it, there's some games there where you at least must have had a thought from the bench like, boy, uh, I should have gotten that duffel bag because it's probably going to cost me something. <laughs> you know, I would say when I – so when you – it's just the kind of the way it kind of came to fruition as, as well with the – I find one of the funniest parts, and any hockey fan would, that knew me as a player in the NHL. Like I – you know, I was a, a, a third, fourth-line role-playing player that um you know i had i, I was uh, that was one of my proudest moments uh careers I, I had a few good uh big games like in game seven of the stanley cup finals and and those things but i was never a goal scorer right i was never a point getter and <laughs> i'm watching this documentary and uh i start seeing them say uh we need a bleeping goal score and I'm all of a sudden thinking to myself, who are they talking about? I don't remember this part. <laughs> and then they put my face on the screen. I'm like, oh, they're talking about me. And it yeah. just goes to the point, like, A.J. loved the game of hockey. A.J. played it, and I talked to him about that before, too, when he had that injury in high school. And that was, like, his love. That was his outlet. Everybody has their outlet, right? And that was his. And so, but the, it's just funny how it comes together. Like, the last NHL game he saw, live in person was game seven of the Stanley Cup Finals, Devils, Ducks. And that was when I had three points in that in, in that game seven. So on his mind, when he's thinking I need a goal score, I'm the guy that comes to mind. You know what I mean? And it's hilarious because then that's how he sought out after um, trying to get me. I thought it was like a really random and all these weird things come into play in that and so you know I, I don't know I think that was part of it is like I saw this kid's desire and you know you, you you saw this level of hockey and there's times where we had to sit there and be like hey we can't fight right now like we we got to actually win this game and uh you know we had a good group of guys and well, a, a super tough team but man there's some good players too and there's times where we had to have meetings and like in every other hockey team hey Let's not be stupid here for the next five minutes. We got to close this game out. And, um, I, I thought it was good. We, it, everybody just kind of bought in. And the best thing about it, we'd all go out and have have beers, have um, you know, have something to eat after the games. It's just sharing stories and in that atmosphere. And they were a part of it too. Um, we it made our team really tight. Like we had a really tight knit group. And when you see AJ down on the ice after games, high fiving people, it did. It felt like it was us against the world, and it was. It was kind of really cool because there's no other hockey going on in my world that year, and it was a great experience I'll never forget. Yeah, and again, I, and I know this has come up a billion times in your life as well, and when you say you're not a goal scorer, it's like, all right, cool, yeah, you weren't a 40-goal guy, but you did score a cup-clinching goal. Like, that was, like, it's, it's a big goal, like, to remember. So, 
Yeah, that gets me to the other stuff. Well, one is that you must have told stories about this team. I, I cannot imagine how many times in NHL dressing rooms from this point forward you had to tell stories about the Danbury Trashers and how known it was around hockey. Like, did like that's it? Is did other guys right after the lockout? You're coming back. You're playing on teams. Start just bugging you immediately. Like, holy crap, we're aware of what happened here. Or was it? a little less known throughout hockey what had transpired i think it was it was less known i didn't really like there's a few times it came up in conversation with teammates um in the nhl i don't think people really knew about it and um you know i know at the same time though in the in united hockey league there was that crew up in motor city the detroit red wings is darren hatcher chris chelio sean avery um, they were all playing for the Motor City team. Um, and then in St. Louis, I think, had like Bryce Salvador and a few of the um, the guys from the, from the Blues playing down there in like Quad City. But um, it, we never really played against each other. Like even my situation, like I didn't play every game. Like that was, that was part of it. Like I got to stay, I got to stay uh, home in Erie, Pennsylvania, practice with the OHL Erie Otters during the week. And I'd fly in every other weekend and play games. So, you know what I mean? Like, I only had to, like, it was a great situation. And so I don't know if that many NHL players knew about all those things. And um, But the one thing I do know now is, like you mentioned, with the phone ringing and people reaching out, I've had a, a handful of, of former teammates that are still current, currently in the NHL. They're like, wait a second. Like, wh- where did this come from? I'm watching this, and all of a sudden your mug pops up on screen, and they want to order Trasher jerseys. So um, yeah. I, I picked up the phone. I called A.J., and uh, I said, uh, AJ, I don't know what you got going with this uh, team shop that's been in a hiatus since 2006, but you're going to have to open this thing up because all, oh. all these people. And what do you see? You saw Drake with a Danbury Trashers yeah. jersey on the other day. Yeah. So this thing's blowing up. Dude, that's those, those Danbury Trashers jerseys and shirts and, like, all, all that is going to pop off. Like, they better get the printing press. Some, some printing press company in Danbury is unbelievably thrilled today. They're doing business there. Like, they are doing business. And, yes, of course, that those guys played in the UHL because one of the funniest YouTube clips ever when it comes to, like, a hockey mic'd up is that mic'd up in the UHL video. I can't remember who it is. But it's someone who's just relentless with Chelios and who just, like. Have you ever seen that video? Oh, yeah. You know what I'm talking. About? Yeah. Yeah, that's where they where they say didn't don't they say like uh, give a young player a chance, you old man or yeah. something. Yes, <laughs> he's just relentless like with him, like going after him and Hatcher and yeah, nonstop making fun of Chelios for the tanning bed. Like it's great. It's really it's a really really funny video. It's a genuine great look into that league at the time. So good. Love that clip. I haven't seen it in a really long time, but I remember someone showing it to me and being like, how have I not seen this? Uh, it's really, it's, uh, I hate thinking about how old it is. Okay, so this brings me to the like actual hockey conversation. And the thing I couldn't get rid of watching it was, man, those fans were going absolutely nuts. And part of that is the community. Part of that's who's running the team. Part of that's the fact that they, like you, you said, invested in them, right? It was also a winning product. It wasn't just fights, right? It wasn't just fights. You weren't just showing up for brawls every night. That was an element of that, though, right? And there's this connection that the fan base had to the team. And you just kind of alluded to it that there was a connection between you guys because of that team toughness and because of the fighting. And I know that we always have to have these like referendums on fighting and hockey and blah, 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 blah. But it really did make me 
it, it did make me feel a little sad watching it, thinking that this is so phased out of the game. And one of the easiest ways to connect new fans to hockey is not the skill. It is fighting, and it is team toughness. And I, it did start to make me feel different ways about the, about the direction hockey is heading with fighting and just sort of losing that element of, hey, this is an entertainment product, and there is an actual value to that in the sport that is greater than when we just have conversations about, like, negative conversations about fighting. Yeah, and, you know, I think that's part of it is, and obviously with what I do now, being retired for the last seven years or so and, and doing the analyst work um, in the NHL, it's, I, I think the game has never been in a healthier place as far as it's never been more skilled. Uh, we, I think it's got a, this real opportunity to really explode kind of to another level now. Um, does that mean that um, – that fighting wasn't a huge part of this game and hasn't been up to this point. No, like that, it, that was a huge element. I mean, they, everybody's always said for decades, the one moment in the hockey game where everyone stands up is when two guys fight. And that's, that's always been there. It's never changed. I don't think it ever will be. Uh, the players want it to be in there. And I think that the whole part with this, when you watch this documentary, it's not saying, Hey, this is the way the game should be right. Like, I don't think the game should be like that. I was shocked that it was even like that in 2004. You know what I mean? I mean, that was that was the crazy part of the story. It was 2004, but it was a flashback to the 70s, like the Broad Street Bullies, the the, the Flyers back in the day. And that was, that, that was so – it was a generation that was seeing this for the first time. And that's what this documentary, I, I think, does. So when people watch it, I mean, there's been – I'm, everybody's been saying how incredible and how nuts the story's been. But then there's, you know, there's some people that are like, oh, it's disgusting. Like, okay, but they happened. You know, we're not, I'm not saying this is how, hey, the, the NHL should strive for this next year. But, man, the stories and the, and the chaos and the things that were kind of allowed to happen uh, were absolutely incredible. So I, I think that that's the, that, that's the big thing. And I, I, I always think that there's a place for fighting hockey. Um, I, I like that they've gotten rid of the casual fighting, you know, you got to have a fight with purpose. Um, that, that, that's, there's far less of those, but they're important. And every NHL player seems to still want it and it's there. And, um, I think this is just another snapshot of what the game used to be. And it was crazy. Yeah. Um, I'm always going to believe in it. Uh, I'm always going to enjoy it. I find that a lot of people like to clutch at pearls when it comes to fighting in hockey because it's an easy pop on social media or it's an easy thing that people have a tough time pushing back on where it's just, you know, I don't want, it's barbaric, it's this, it's that. I'm like, these same people are paying to watch Jake Paul fight Tyron Woodley on a Saturday night, right? It's like, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just think that people really, there. to me, the dark side of fighting more had to do with guys who felt like they needed to do it and didn't want to. And, like, you know, had to hide injuries and for a long time were going into really dark spaces. But I do think now, especially, like, in 2021, right, if a guy decides to go out and fight, there's autonomy there for the most part, right? Like, it's not like the 1970s where you had to do it, right, or else you were soft no. or else you'd be out of the league. That it's like, they're, like when guys go out and make this decision, it's like they're making this decision because they're either sticking up for a teammate. Like, so Nick Foligno fought Corey Perry in the playoffs last year, and there was this big consternation here amongst some Leaf fans where they were like, oh, he shouldn't do that, and Corey Perry didn't mean to do it, and boo-hoo, boo-hoo. And I'm like, for God's sakes, Nick Foligno is one of the best teammates in all of hockey. Everybody loves this guy. 
guy. And he said it to Corey Perry, and Corey Perry knew it as well because he just understood it, where he's like, I don't care if it was an accident. Like, you have to atone for this. We need something to be able to, like, settle this game in and be able to move on. And people were like, it's not fair. And as, as though Corey Perry was, like, bullied into this. And I just, yeah, I, I think that we have sort of lost the plot a little bit about – yeah, player autonomy being a huge part of this conversation of, yeah, you get to make the decision if you want to fight. And that it still does resonate with fans. It still can make you a more popular player, and it can still have an impact on the ice and to a team. Yeah, no, it's a great point. And it's got two sides to that. And you just use that example there with, with Corey Perry and Felino is, is this is the part that people have to understand. And it was like as long as I've been in the league, and I've been, I've been playing professional hockey since 2000. And... um you know, it, it was different prior to this, but all I know in professional hockey is, uh, for the most part, maybe there's a couple times of exception. If you don't want to fight, you don't have to fight. Corey Perry didn't have to fight. He didn't have to accept that. And nothing would, uh, uh, he did it. He's cut from that same cloth as Nick Felino. So he accepted that fight, right? And what happened? It was over. Everybody moved on. And and it was maybe not forgotten about uh, because of the impact of, of the play that, this was all coming from, but um, it, it was done with. So this is where it gets dangerous, though. Let's say, for an example, that that wasn't Corey Perry. So I know Corey Perry will stand up and, and for, him, for himself and his actions and fight, but say it was someone else, <clears throat> and Nick Foligno confronts that player, and that player's like, nope, I'm good. I'm good. He's got every right to do that, and he's not going to have to fight, especially in the playoffs. I don't think you know, no one's going to want to take a suspension and do something stupid to him. But what's the next thing? It, it, there's still an... There's an appetite of, no, we're not satisfied yet. So then it's about, now, what do we do? Now you're looking for more extravagant, crazy things to do to send a message back. When just wrestling around, maybe uh, taking a, a punch to the side of the helmet, we'll put it, put it to bed. And that's where things get stupid. And that's where yeah. guys go out. And, you know, I mean, I hate to even compare it to that. But, I mean, you go all the way back to the, the dark days of the – Bertuzzi situation. I mean, there's an appetite that wasn't fulfilled. And if guys just stood up and said, you know what, that was garbage. I'll go out there and and stand up for myself and, and do this. It'll put it to bed. And it's actually, yeah. for guys that play the game, way safer than letting everybody go and be the wild, wild west and try to settle it on their own. Yeah, man. Uh, I, I really appreciate that perspective because I just don't think it gets said enough. I, I just don't. Like, I think that it's very, very easy to dunk on fighting. And that it's very, very easy to say, again, that it's barbaric and unwanted or banned or all these different things. And I'm like, ah, just, I, I don't agree. The, game, the, the, game's, the game's barbaric. I mean, yeah. let's be honest. They take fighting out of the game. Hockey is a, is, a, is a ruthless, barbaric sport. So it's football. And football's yeah. the most popular sport in North America. You know what I mean? Like, that's just, that's the nature of the sport. So you've got to, I think there has to be some control in it. And for hockey, I thought yeah. fighting for a, a, a big chunk of hockey's uh, existence it's been controlled by fighting. Yeah. And, you know, I watched Tom Brady this past week talk about how football has changed over his tenure as a quarterback. And you'd think that for a guy like that who's had longevity and who had a really, really horrific injury where someone went low on him and gave him an ACL tear, that he would talk about how much happier he is with the way that the game is policed by referees instead of players. And he was like, that was his number one gripe. He was like, it's not right that he is not responsible for his receivers or himself and that players just get to be reckless and that it ends up in different injuries. Anyway, like guys will throw guys into more dangerous situations 
because they know that they're going to be able to get a penalty if someone hits them in that spot. And yeah, there's just a different element that I don't think fans like fans who normally would go, oh, that's a bad hit and we need to get those hits out of the game. It's like, yeah, but you also have to look at why those hits are happening, right? Like, and that's the same thing with hockey in those circumstances that you just outlined where it's like, yeah, why does sometimes a cheap shot happen? Why do we end up losing and having a game spiral out of control? Well, it's because that's the way that guys know how to settle things, which is ultimately ends up being more dangerous in a sport that is already dangerous. Um, and here, hey, man, the counter, this is great. Do, do, I got another, do I got another second to follow that? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, so the, 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 the one thing that always pops up, too, and, and this, the, it's always, well, look what happened to this player, and they had these tough guys on that team. So it doesn't, it doesn't deter anybody from taking runs at your star players. It doesn't do that. No, it's never going to completely take it, <clears throat> excuse me, take it away, but here's what it does. If you have, a, you have 18 skaters every night, right? You've got 12 forwards, 6 defensemen. You've got 18 skaters on the ice. Everybody wants to play in that league. Everybody's dreamt about playing in that league. Not everybody has that top-end skill. Not everybody is Austin Matthews. And uh, they, 97% of the players are scratch, clawing, and grabbing, trying to stay in the league. So, And I'm a perfect example of that because when I got drafted in the first round, I was a point-getting guy. I had to change my game. It, I wasn't going to be a point-getting guy in the, in the National Hockey League. So I have to get eyeballs looking at me and noticing me. The easiest way of doing that is going around stirring up some stuff. And so my point is, if you have 18 skaters on the ice, we still have it. Brad Marchand has always done it, and he still does it now. But he's got the guts to do it and deal with the consequences at, at times. And the rules have maybe protected him to some degree. Uh, you know, Maybe he wouldn't have done that if this was the, the 90s or the 80s. But my point being is there still is a level of he has to once in a while stand up for himself. And by with that check being in there, maybe – Maybe a roster has two or three guys that are going to act a little uh, like a rat, I guess you can say. If there's no fighting and they ban fighting, you're going to have 15 guys that are going to scratch, call, and grab to get noticed, and they're going to have 15 rats running around. The game will get dirtier when you, you know what I mean? Like, it, 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 there's a lot of players who aren't very brave that if you removed fighting or made it so restrictive that you couldn't do it, all of a sudden these guys are brave. And now all of a sudden the superstars are going to see stuff they've never seen before. So, yes, does having a tough guy on your roster, does it eliminate it completely? No. But it holds it down quite a bit. And there's still a little bit of a level of um, accountability that's there that wouldn't be there if there was no fighting. Yeah, man. I, I believe in what you say. Uh, and I really enjoyed this chat. Like, this was awesome, man. Um, again, uh, congrats on now your uh, massive fame. <laughs> and all the other interviews <laughs> that you're going to have to do and your phone just blowing up and you being the a point of contact for Danbury Trashers things. Like, now your friends know that, too. You put that out there. It's like, you need any Trashers gear? Like, you contact Mike Rupp, <laughs> Stanley Cup champion analyst for the NHL Network. And again, member of uh, one of the most infamous teams in hockey. Thanks for doing this, buddy. Hey, thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. See you, man. Mike Rupp. Going to go to break. And I'm going to start reading some texts and some DMs. Again, at JD Bunkus, shoot me a DM, anything today, or text 59590. You got to follow. 
that was great chat with Rob. And again, I can't recommend that documentary enough. It was really, really entertaining. And it, I think it was just a little over an hour. It wasn't very long. It was one of those ones where it just hits and there was no wasted scenes. I didn't feel as though I got taken down a rabbit hole of something that I didn't need to know. It was just bang, 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 heavy hitting, done, over. And immediately I was on the Wikipedia page trying to figure out some, some of my own other questions that we had. Like, again, what happened to Brad Wingfield? Where did he go? How many more fights did he get into? Can I watch Brad Wingfield fights on HockeyFights.com? The answer is yes. <laughs> the answer is a hearty, hearty yes. Dominate your fantasy hockey league. Dominate it. I'm going to dominate my fantasy football leagues. I'm also going to dominate my fantasy hockey leagues. You know why? Because of the Dauber Hockey Fantasy Guide. Play boss or toss every Sunday on the fantasy show, which is great, and you could win a two-year Dauber Platinum subscription. Sounds like a pretty fair deal. There's details at sportsnet.ca slash 590. 